My name is Ray, and uh, I am here primarily to uh, to introduce Phil, who is my friend. Um, and Phil and I, for years now, have had so many conversations that have meant a great deal to me. Uh, Phil's a physician; he's a pulmonologist, um, and. He, he went to Harvard undergrad, and then he went to um, Mount Sinai Med School, and to Brown for his internal medicine residency, and then he came here for his pulmonary residency. And the way that the uh, fellowship, and the way the fellowships are set up, your first year is kind of front-loaded with a lot of heavy clinical tasks. Um, he spent a great deal of time in the intensive care units at Duke, and became intimately familiar with some of the most difficult decisions that are made around um, patients in, 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 in this hospital. And that's saying a lot, because this is a tertiary referral center, um, an academic hospital that gets people from all over the country. And so to come up against those kinds of decisions um, is, is quite an experience. And I, I met Phil towards the end of his first year when he was thinking about what to do with his couple of years of research. And he, um, he decided something that for me was just a radical decision, which is um, to spend some time in the Divinity School, um, building, um, you know, building onto his theological foundation for his practice in medicine. And he had, he was, he's one of these physicians who recognizes um, the, the profound meaning of what's happening in the middle of the biological complexity of contemporary medicine. And so he began to focus in on the work of chaplains. And Phil has been, um, I think, a very astute observer of chaplaincy. And he observes it as someone who's got a lot of authority because of the, the history that he has as a physician. He lives in the trenches. Um, he's taking care of patients now in a clinic, um, patients who have um, Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, who are patients who, um, have, who are given the diagnosis and who watch as their bodies fail. They know what's coming, and they know sometimes for years, and they watch their bodies fail. So he walked that path with them. So when he is making comments about chaplaincy, he does it as someone who is profoundly aware of the value of chaplaincy and the need for this in our system. When he critiques it, he critiques it as a friend to chaplaincy. Um, and I think that he's in a position to critique it both institutionally and in ways. Y'all can grab chairs uh, out there if you want. If, and you're welcome to pop in my office. And um, uh, if you're in there, check my email real quick. Um, so, so his work has meant a lot to me. And he um, is about to move to Michigan, to Ann Arbor, where he is um, going to be directing um, some important work up there. And, we're hoping can, we'll, he'll be able to continue this, this, the work that he's doing with chaplaincy. Because this is the kind of partnership that can actually make some things happen uh, within this important field. So I'll stop there and turn it over to Phil, and we'll see what Phil has to say today. Thanks for the, um, the warm introduction, Ray. Uh -huh. um, 
Yeah, it's the last time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it the last time. And he's only filling in for far and Warren, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, I met Ray. <laughs> I met Ray, um, yeah, kind of mid to late first year of fellowship when I was thinking about what to do with my research time. And um, he was the one who actually pulled me into the Div school. So um, essentially was a TMC fellow before the fellowship existed. Um, and got to integrate that into my medical practice. So what I'm going to present today is um, actually a talk that I gave as my research talk at the University of Michigan. So very different audience. So I'm actually curious to see um, what discussion comes up here. Uh, that was for kind of an academic um, secular audience. Um, so that's kind of how I frame this talk. But certainly, I think a lot of the discussion that will come up I think will have uh, implications for all of you folks who are at the Div School, any of you who are in medicine, um, who kind of see these things uh, at play. So like Ray said, my primary job is in pulmonary and ICU medicine, so I work both in the intensive care unit as well as uh, dealing with people with end-stage respiratory failure and ALS. Um, so uh, I'm very attuned to um, the fact that as people are dying, there are a lot of needs that come up that we don't necessarily address as physicians. And so always looking to see how we can kind of partner with people in other disciplines to really uh, care for our patients um, better. So um, I'm going to turn to the side a little bit. Um, so the title of my talk is Divine Flatline Is God Dead in the ICU? how religion and spirituality are addressed in the intensive care unit. Um, so the big question is, you know, why did I end up studying this? And, you know, how did I come about, um, you know, studying chaplains per se? So does anyone know, can anyone recognize what this painting is or who might have painted it? Anyone? Well, it looks like Lazarus. That doesn't speak to the name yeah, so it's um, it's a de uh, depiction of the raising of Lazarus by Rembrandt, and so the reason why you know I start off with this is that this kind of represents a lot of what I see in the ICU. So, you know, we get critically ill patients. Um, we probably have about a fifteen to twenty percent mortality in our medical ICU. So, you know, and even pe patients who don't die, a lot of them are pretty chronically ill. Um, and one thing that I found was as we have these discussions about end of life with patients and, you know, more often family members actually because a lot of times our patients are on ventilators and are kind of late stages of their disease, uh, there's this idea that um, somehow Jesus is going to create a miracle where the patient's going to walk out of the room, uh, walk out of the hospital healed because that's what he did to Lazarus. Um, so as we're talking about things like CPR, it seemed really intriguing to me that it was oftentimes these more religious patients um, and family members who were really hoping for these miracles. I just thought that was fascinating because, you know, I come from, you know, a, a Christian faith background where I would think that Christians should be more comfortable with death, if anything, and should be more readily, um, you know, enrolled in hospice and things like that. But you know, as I started to think about these ideas, you know, I started looking into what the literature said about um, religion and spirituality and medicine, and we found, you know, I found some interesting things. You know, obviously most Americans consider religion <coughs> important in their daily life, um, and that number is definitely higher in critical illness. And then, 
you know, if you actually approach and address the religious and spiritual needs of patients, um, it in fact impacts how they are satisfied with their care. Um, and there's a study done by Karen Steinhauser and a group at Duke um, that looked at what factors were actually important to patients and family members at the end of life. And peace with God was actually one of the most important and actually only second uh, to being free from pain. So that surprised them because, you know, they thought maybe it would be like being next to family members or dying at home, but it was actually peace with God that was one of the top um, things that was important to patients and families at the end of life. So there was a study called the Coping with Cancer Study. This was done by the Balbonis up in um, Boston and the group that they're connected with. So this was a longitudinal study of cancer patients in the outpatient setting. And so they took a subset and looked at the ways that um, religiosity and what we called positive religious coping. So that's the sense of saying like, oh, God is with me, you know, using um, religion as kind of a positive coping mechanism. They found actually that those patients were uh, more likely to die in the ICU, generally chose more aggressive care, they had higher costs at the end of life, and they used less hospice which again, kind of goes along with what I had experienced um, in my own personal experience with patients in our ICU that, you know, the more religious ones were the ones who use this language of, well, we believe in miracles, we believe in healing, so we believe that CPR and dialysis, you know, are God's way of, you know, healing our loved one. Um, but I thought this was interesting because this was the first time that this was really um, done in kind of a research setting. Um, and again, went along with our experiences, but counterintuitive to what I would think that, you know, religious people would believe. But what they also found was that if spiritual needs were met by the medical team, and so this could have been doctors, nurses, chaplains were also included that in that, as long as they were part of that uh, multidisciplinary team. They found that there was increased hospice utilization, <coughs> lower healthcare costs, less aggressive care chosen, and so, again, I was initially talking to an ICU um, group, but, you know, does this really matter for us? You know, is the horse already out of the barn? You know, we deal with patients who are acutely ill in the inpatient setting. Um, is there anything that we can really do in the ICU setting to really kind of mitigate some of this? And so, um, you know, as I looked more into what our professional societies say, I was, you know, I realized that this is actually really important even in ICU medicine. You know, the ATS is the American Thoracic Society, so it's one of our governing bodies. The Society of Critical Care Medicine focuses on um, ICU. Um, but then also the Joint Commission, which I don't know if any of you guys have had much experience in, you know, hospital settings, but the Joint Commission basically dictates what you need to do as a hospital to stay accredited. And then obviously national palliative care organizations also have statements about religion and spirituality and addressing these um, concerns for patients and family members. And so critical care, so there was a group of critical care physicians, um, kind of experts in the field who got together and identified spiritual support as one of the seven key domains when um, we're talking about good critical care. And so I thought this was interesting as we talk about definitions. So spiritual support for them was defined as uh, assessing and documenting spiritual needs of patients and families on an ongoing basis. And I underline that because a lot of times we have these intake questions where nurses might ask, you know, do you want to see a chaplain? 
but really they're focus you know they're trying to stress you know that you're doing this on an ongoing basis so it's not just a one and done deal um, so we encourage access to spiritual resources so again you know oftentimes the nurses ask do you want to see a chaplain as part of their intake um, and then we want to elicit and facilitate spiritual and cultural practices that the patient and family can find comforting um, again you know this is something that experts have agreed upon as ways that we provide good critical care. Not sure that that's necessarily being done, but certainly it's something that we strive for. Uh, palliative care groups have, again, this is pretty similar um, in terms of guidelines that palliative care groups have said, and again, so much of what we do in ICU medicine is palliative care, so I incorporate that into this mainly because they go hand in hand. And then what the Joint Commission says, um, and I'll read this because I actually find this pretty interesting. It says, spiritual assessment should, at a minimum, determine the patient's denomination, beliefs, and what spiritual practices are important to the patient. This information would assist in determining the impact of spirituality, if any, on the care services being provided, and will identify if any further assessment is needed, the standards require organizations to define the content and scope of spiritual and other assessments and the qualifications of the individual performing the assessment. So that's pretty comprehensive and actually um, pretty, they're high standards to achieve, um, but it really talks about you know identifying issues, finding the necessary people who can address these issues, um, all of which are challenges in the ICU. So I started to think about, um, you know, well, how can we approach this in the ICU? What could we study? Um, I met with a group of people. Um, Ray was one of them, and then other people within the hospital system, like Karen Steinhauser, Kim Johnson, Jim Kuski, <coughs> my mentor Chris Cox. Um, this was before Far had come in, but I had a phone conversation with Far Curlin, discussing, okay, well, can we possibly look at? It? And we thought about, okay, well, maybe we can look at what chaplains do because there's not a lot written about that in the ICU. And so started looking at what uh, literature there was about chaplaincy. And there's not a ton, but there were some. And one study um, back in 2010 was a multi-centered study. Um, and it basically showed that you know only about half, maybe a little less than half of patients that were surveyed were seen by a chaplain. But a majority of them actually thought that the visit was important to them. Uh, this other study in 2004 um, was just telephone interviews from a Catholic uh, health network. It was contacting the families of patients who had died um, and they found that three-quarters of the patients were seen by the chaplain for the first time at the time of death but uh, the family members did generally find that um, that they received comfort and support from the chaplain. So why does this all matter to ICU doctors? Um, you know one Patients and families have said that they're more satisfied when spiritual issues are addressed. There's this whole idea of treating the whole person. So we've, you know, we oftentimes focus on the biological uh, issues. Um, I think there's more attention paid to the kind of psychosocial issues, um, but then spiritual issues are kind of this nebulous black box within the medical world that we ideally would like to address, but I think a lot of us don't know really how. Then we have these mandates from our professional societies. And then ultimately, are there questions about healthcare costs, 
um, ways that addressing religion and spirituality can actually improve um, how we deliver care and may affect the health system as a whole. And then, you know, specifically for ICU, we have a lot of people who end up in the ICU don't really benefit from it. Um, our ICUs are always filled. It's always hard to get someone in. You know, the question is, is there a way that we can approach the patients holistically that will help with, you know, just moving the health system, you know, moving the hospital in a more efficient manner, which I know shouldn't be the focus, but when you're talking to hospitals about trying to hire chaplains, those are the things that they care about in terms of recognizing that, you know, there may be impact that really makes the, I guess, cost of hiring chaplains worth, uh, worth it to the hospital. Um, something has to be measurable. So that gets me into this um, paper that was published in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management that I worked on with Far Curlin and uh, my mentor Chris Cox within my division. And so we did a retrospective chart review. Uh, we looked at the five adult ICUs at Duke. And so the way we uh, performed the study was we basically did um, an electronic health record query. So we looked for all patients who were in the ICU who had a chaplain note. And so one of the things that we had to um, figure out was about chaplain documentation. So I met with Jim Rawlings, the head of chaplaincy, to make sure that, you know, that people weren't being missed, people who had been seen by a chaplain who, you know, might not have a note. But he assured me that, you know, as we rolled out our new electronic health record, that everyone that the chaplain saw, even if they couldn't actually see them because they were off getting a CT scan, everyone had a note documented. So we felt pretty confident that we were capturing everyone that was seen by a chaplain. And so we gathered um, demographic data, you know, age, gender, race, religion, and ICU location. So these were all things that we could find from the chart itself. And then clinical data, we looked at admission diagnosis, hospital length of stay, ICU length of stay, discharge disposition, so whether they went home, whether they went to a nursing home, uh, a long-term care facility, or whether they died. Um, and then the SOFA score is just a score that basically is um, a new method of basically judging how sick someone is. Um, and then we also looked at the time of uh, two first chaplain note from the ICU admission, and then the time from the first chaplain note to discharge or death if they died in the hospital. And then the information that we were able to get from the chaplain notes itself were who the consult was initiated by, which is a little bit hard, you know, that I would take with a grain of salt just because um, most of these patients, or these were who the chaplains were reporting the consult was initiated by. So, you know, it's hard to say whether a physician initiated it or not if we had just told the nurse to call the chaplain or something like that. But, uh, but they also reported who they discussed the case with. So you know, whether they discussed, you know, the care with the interdisciplinary team, the nurse, the physician. So that should be accurate because that's um, chaplains reporting who they actually talked to. And so some of our results, so it was a, you know, the average age was about 60, um, majority male, but uh, almost 50-50. Um, I think the race demographics are probably consistent with our patient population here at Duke. Um, and then I just highlight this religion just because um, I think it tells you a little bit about the culture here in the South in general where people have strong denomination affiliation. So, you know, a lot of times people would report being Baptist as, a, as opposed to just like Protestant Christian. Um, 
and so this is just more to say like this is who we're dealing with because it'd be very different if you went to a city like Seattle or LA. Um, so these patients were generally pretty sick. Um, let's see, hospital length of stay. So they're generally there for, I guess, <coughs> an average of six days. They're mostly coming straight to the ICU and either leaving the ICU or dying in the ICU. But mechanically ventilated, that's almost three quarters of these patients who are on ventilators, which means that the chaplain visit was probably more for the family than anyone else. Um, and then this at the bottom, so 79% of the patients who were seen by the chaplain actually died in the ICU. So this is some general demographic data. So the first um, line you can see that we had a total of four, over 4,000 admissions to the ICUs over that six-month period. So there were only tw 248 patients that we saw who had um, chaplain notes during that time. So that's 6% of all comers to the ICU, which is a little bit skewed by the fact that um, surgical ICUs, there's a lot of turnover. A lot of them are in and out for kind of routine, you know, post-op. But even within the medical ICU where people are chronically ill, we have a high mortality rates, it was still only 13% of the patients who were seen by a chaplain. So this box, patients with a chaplain consult who are mechanically ventilated. Um, so that's 10% uh, total. Again, you know, there are a lot of mechanically ventilated patients in the hospital. And then about a quarter of uh, the medical ICU patients who are mechanically ventilated were seen by a chaplain. And then this line, I think, highlights something that's, um, you know, one of our key findings. If you died in the ICU, the chance of being seen by a chaplain were actually very high. So 81% of total patients who died in the ICU were seen by a chaplain. And then, in the, particularly in the surgical ICUs, I think probably because death is a little bit less frequent there, um, you know, those numbers were in the 90s percents. Was that before or after the patient died? Or um, was it, it was either? It was either. Okay. So it was if the patient died. I do have to say that looking at the notes, it was a little bit hard to capture this fully, but there were actually a lot of, you know, chaplains who were called after the patient died. So oftentimes as part of kind of the decedent care, you know, witness. It used to be, we had, and I don't know if this is still the case, that every time there was a death, we had to go because we had to witness the that they received the notice of privacy practice. So we went to all deaths. I'm not sure if that's yeah, still the case. But. I certainly don't know if that's the I mean, I never heard of that rule. So certainly, like, when I fill out death certificates, I sign it and, uh, you know, decedent care come. I don't think to, I don't think to call the chaplain in that time. But um, so it actually may be actually, so the chaplain may actually not have much interaction with the family at that time. Um, Usually, in my practice, I w a lot of times, if we were withdrawing on a patient, I would oftentimes ask if, it, if they wanted a chaplain to be seen you know, to come at that time. Um, I generally don't call the chaplain after the patient's already died, but it may be decedent care that calls them. So, I'm guessing there's no record records kept of a local clergy person that's mm -hmm. not part of the. Okay. No, that's not what we were looking at. Do you get the sense that that's happening at all? I mean, I think. Um, a, lot, a lot of times pastors are visiting. Um, a lot of times people may reject chaplaincy just because, you know, they may have a local community. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say. But that being said, in studies that looked at local um, 
kind of pastoral care local communities, um, if they had support from a local community, they were actually also inclined to pick more aggressive care. And so, um, so there's something about the ways that religion and spirituality are addressed by the hospital system mm -hmm. that seems to have effects on how patients choose their care. Okay. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe that um, chaplains are just more used to like, you know, I'm not sure exactly what people are, what kind of advice people are getting, you know, from their local communities. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they're talking about praying for miracles and stuff like that and not really aware of how sick the patient is. It's, it's hard to say, but <clears throat> certainly it's something that the uh, Balboni group has been looking at in terms of the ways that local clergy are involved. Any other questions? So some of the uh, interesting findings here. So if we looked at the days from the first chaplain note to ICU death or discharge, um, the median time was one day with the interquartile range of zero to four. Um, so it's really oftentimes in the last 24 hours of the patient's hospitalization that people are being, the chaplains are being called. Um, you know, in terms of who the consult was requested by, like I said, that's a little bit hard to determine whether that's actually true, and I don't think there's a lot, um, you know, really at stake there. But when they discuss who the encounter was discussed with, um, there was no documentation in 22% of these cases. So, again, I'm not sure that, that means they're coming in and out. Um, it makes sense that 50% of them say with the nurse because the nurses are at the bedside. But only 6% are communicating with the physicians, which, um, you know, as a, coming from the physician standpoint, certainly um, the ways that I've talked to the chaplains about this is, you know, the physicians are really kind of running rounds, like making sure that the plans are incorporated, things like that. And so <coughs> I've always encouraged chaplains that, you know, to kind of assert themselves in the sense of like, if you think your job is important, you need to be able to, you know, feel important. And if you're kind of afraid of the physicians or afraid of what how they're gonna, you know, take if whether they're gonna take you seriously, like unless you're able to take yourself seriously and like kind of assert yourself into the medical team, no one's gonna really make the effort to say like, hey, come here and join us. Um, and so, I think if that if something is important, it's. Um, if it's not being communicated directly with the doctor, it's probably not going to get to them eventually. Um, and so uh, I, I just thought that was interesting because there does seem to be this disconnect between like spiritual care and the physician, whereas you know any other disciplines like speech, PT, OT, um, you know, uh, dietitians, they all come to us directly, whether it's the resident, the fellow, the attending. And so I do think that there is this way that spiritual care feels like this separate thing, even though we talk about these kind of, um, kind of multidisciplinary incorporated models of care. So, you know, the summary of this um, study was basically that chaplain consults are rare, they're mainly being called for dying patients, and there essentially is minimal communication between uh, chaplains and physicians. So I followed this up with a study that I wanted to look at how physicians and uh, other ICU clinicians actually approach some of these topics. So we did a study um, that was a survey study of ICU clinicians looking at some of these topics. Some of the questions were 
geared mainly towards chaplaincy. Some of them were geared towards um, religion and spiritually spirituality as you know a general theme in the ICU. And so we wanted to look at how they address religion and spirituality and what their attitudes about that were, um, how frequently we were reporting addressing these issues, and then also attitudes towards chaplain consults in general. And so we did surveys of ICU physicians, nurses, and advanced practice providers, so APPs. Um, so those are nurse practitioners and physician assistants who work primarily in the ICU. Um, again, our survey questions were you know, designed specifically based on our previous study and the results from that. So we looked at clinical levels, um, primary ICU, their level of religiosity and spirituality, the religious affiliation, and um, <coughs> religious service attendance. And so all the questions were designed on a four to five point Likert scale. And when we were analyzing them, we divided the answers into positive and negative dichotomous responses. So if it was in order of frequency, we kind of grouped often and always together. Um, if it was agree or disagree, it'd be, you know, um, agree strongly or agree would be grouped together, and then the disagree um, options were uh, grouped together. And so the survey was distributed to 300 people. We've got 18, 218 um, surveys were returned. Uh, I think that yeah, it took some uh, it took a little bit of time to try to get to all these patients. Um, let's see. So in terms of different ICUs, it was mo mostly medical ICU, probably mainly because that's where I work and had easy easiest access to them. Um, so I'm just going to go through actually some of the key questions that came up and some of the key answers. Um, that I just thought were pretty fascinating. So one of the, the first question that I asked was this idea of responsibility. So it is my responsibility to inquire about the religious spiritual needs of patients. And so actually if you look at this, um, you have attendings and fellows here on the left. You have nurses in the gray and the APPs in the yellow. And so um, this actually surprised me. So a majority of clinicians actually agreed or strongly agreed with the statement um, I actually didn't think that this would be the case. I would, I would have thought that clinicians, because we do it so infrequently, that we would say that it's not our responsibility, maybe the responsibility of the chaplain. Uh, but, you know, everyone pretty much um, agreed or strongly agreed. There was a slight difference between physicians and nurses, so the nurses were a little bit more likely to strongly agree. But, again, a majority of all clinicians agreed with this statement. And so we followed this with uh, this question, I feel comfortable talking to patients about their religious and spiritual concerns. And again, most people seem to feel comfortable talking about these things. Um, a majority of attendings, a little bit less so for fellows. Uh, so fellows are the level of training after residency. So they're specialized in ICU care. Um, APPs, it's such a small number, it's hard to, you know, know what to do with that but you know certainly like nurses and attendings both strongly agree with the statement or agree with the statement um, there was maybe a trend towards attendings being more comfortable than fellows but not statistically significant but maybe there is something about levels ex of experience um, probably not true training but you know maybe it's just a matter of kind of level of experience um, that helps people feel more comfortable 
But then I asked, how often do you ask patients about their religious or spiritual concerns? Um, and so again, this is all the people who are who grouped uh, often or always as an answer. And again, it's a pretty small minority. Um, even for nurses who, part of the in nursing intake for ICU patients is a question about whether they want to see a chaplain. So every patient gets asked that or family member if they can't talk for themselves, which to me indicates that asking that is actually not um, equated with actually addressing these spiritual concerns uh, to the nurses. How much of that did you sense is a cultural thing? Like, I think it's important, but I also feel uncomfortable in my role as a physician or a fellow or a nurse sort of asking that because it feels like... I mean, I can't say anything about okay. that just because this is a survey that, you know... I didn't know if that maybe that came up in other responses or... No, I mean, it's just, I mean, these are just survey results, so there are, we can't really make inferences in terms of why things are the case, but certainly, you know, if you were to do follow-up studies with, you know, qualitative work and interviews, it, you know, it'd be interesting to, you know, say, well, you know, we have these results that say that you feel like it's your responsibility and you feel comfortable with it, but yet people are rarely doing it, so the question is, you know, why is that? You know, is it a matter of time? Is it true? Is it that they actually don't really feel that comfortable, but for some reason on an anonymous survey, they, you know, decided to answer? Again, this kind of goes, um, I was surprised by these results. I, I figured that people would say that they weren't comfortable asking these questions um, or addressing these issues. But Do you get the sense that maybe they think somebody else is doing it? Um, I bet, well, we know that chaplains aren't seeing our pa patients, so I don't know who they would think would be doing it. So, uh, Somebody else's problem bubble. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Something to explore in terms of, you know, I know for me personally in the ICU, like, you know, people are near death most of the time. And so when you're, I can say that I value the, you know, religious and spiritual needs, but do I actually really value that as much as, you know, keeping them alive? Probably not. Um, you know, so, you know, it's a matter of what role that plays in the ICU when people, when you're having to do procedures and you're having to, you know, address all these things. It's, I think it'd be different if someone brought it up. Um, and there have been studies that show that, you know, when families bring it up, physicians tend to change the subject pretty quickly. Um, FAR was involved with that paper that was done out of University of Pittsburgh. Uh, so it may ultimately just, you know, and a lot of the ways that it comes up is that it's kind of um, at odds with what we're trying to say as doctors. And so it's, it's always a challenge, even for me, like I'm talking about their family members who, who's dying and about, you know, really needing to withdraw care. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about miracles. It's, you know, hard to know where to go from that, especially when you have 20 other patients in the ICU that also need your care, so. Uh, So again, why this disconnect? Um, I think certainly worth exploring and needing to be explored. Um, if there's any, you know, if we want to know what the right intervention is or the ways to approach this, I think we have to know why there is this disconnect in the first place. Um, so some questions about <coughs> chaplaincy, how they approach chaplaincy in general. So how often do you consult the chaplain when a patient is actively dying? Um, you know, again, majority of our clinicians are actually consulting the chaplain or at least saying that they're consulting the chaplain at this time. 
but how often are you consulting the chaplain when a patient appears to be recovering from critical illness? It's a pretty staggering minority. Um, nurses a little bit more um, likely to than physicians, but again, it's pretty small numbers. Um, and there's good evidence that show that people who survive the ICU have high levels of PTSD, anxiety, and probably some spiritual distress as well. You know, if you particularly if you end up sick, a lot sicker than when you came in, um, I think there would be a lot of these existential questions that maybe aren't really like depression or anxiety, but um, you know, people who might be prone to having some kind of spiritual distress. And so certainly, these are not patients that we're capturing. You know, it might also be interesting to ask how often they're consulted when you don't know if the patient's dying or not. Yeah. Which is pretty Which is often, a lot. You know, the uncertainty in prognosis and there's this big gap of time yeah. where you really don't know what direction they're going to go. But it may be something where the family's input about who the patient is and what they care about could make a real difference yeah. in whether or not you continue pushing for biological duration. Yeah. Especially if your outcome is going to be you know, low function, um, poor quality of life, but blood still going around and around. Yeah, I think from our previous study, you know, at least objectively, we can say that that's probably not happening because, no, you know, it's a majority who are actually dying. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also because most of them are being called within the last 24 hours, I, su I suspect it's mainly, um, if we had like a stopwatch from like mm -hmm. time of chaplain consult to death, I bet it would be more like, you know those hours as opposed to like absolutely i think that's or... what that's the interesting like to me i think you get like almost a flat line um mm -hmm. but that's important because that's yeah. where you say all right well this actually looks like one of those places where the visit of a chaplain or a relationship with a chaplain might make a difference you know because they're going to die they're going to die they're going to mm -hmm. live well you know it's going to happen but uh, do you know how this data consulting chaplains correlates or contrasts with palliative care consults? Yeah, we tried to look at, we did look at who was seen by palliative care and who wasn't. Um, you know, we didn't actually, you know, because it didn't actually seem to correlate like who was seen by palliative care and who wasn't. Um, in the ICU, we tend to not consult palliative care that much um, in our medical ICU. I think partially because palliative care is kind of embedded into what we do naturally. So a lot of times we're calling palliative care um, more when there's difficult like uh, family dynamics that we need kind of a third party. Um, certainly in DRH, it'd be interesting to look at that just because the chaplain there in palliative care is pretty visible, like everyone kind of knows him and um, and their team is a little bit more integrated into the ICE. We, we call a lot more palliative care consults at DRH. Um, I think it's just probably a little bit of the culture of the two hospitals and probably the volume that they have, that they're able to see more in the ICU than here. I mean, the volume is so high uh, through the, throughout the hospital. Everything's kind of understaffed. And, and I think there is, if you know the culture of the ICU at all, um, there is a little bit of this pride, like, no, we can handle, handle this on our own. Um, so there's always challenges to, you know, working with palliative care and that, like, I think a lot of ICU clinicians will say, well, that's my job, you know, like, I don't need to bring in a third party. Um, 
Yeah, except that if 79% of your ventilated patients are dying, that means that the choice of patient, the, the patient you choose to ventilate, um, probably might be reasonably, the decision-making process could be examined truthfully. <laughs> yes. Um, and the, uh, you know, it, like in, in the pediatric intensive care unit, the pal our palliative care group is probably consulted on three-fourths of the families. Yeah. It, it is, you know, the problem in the medical ICU is that even within our medical ICU, there's not a lot of consensus in terms of who is like, too far gone and who's not so particularly the younger generation with ECMO being kind of a regular part of care now um, I think there are there's a wide range of what we think is appropriate with, even with our medical ICU group um, so that's one of the challenges to modern day ICUs technology keeps improving in some ways but um, you know and everyone has their story about the person who almost died and you know came out walking out of the hospital. Um, and I certainly have those stories too, and so I'm not someone who like discounts all aggressive measures, but certainly, you know, for my 90-year-old who's on dialysis and, you know, has heart failure and, you know, I think certain things are pretty inappropriate, but again, what is inappropriate varies from clinician to clinician, so. But I, you know, Again, like the palliative care consults were infrequent enough that it didn't really correlate with um, who the chaplain was seeing. I have a question, Dr. Mm -hmm. um, in From what you've seen and, and experienced, how, how long would you say that the chaplain spends with each family that he or she visits? Uh, it's hard to say. I think they do put a timestamp on it. Um, I know from my, uh, so after this study came out, actually I think chaplain practices changed here at Duke. And so um, I had a friend who did a chaplain residency and she said that after, you know they were required to see every patient who was seen, um, who was in the ICU for like over a certain amount of time, which to me was crazy because you know a lot of people are in the ICU for a few days and are you know, post-op or, um, it doesn't seem like just standardizing it to that because then I think visits became really short, like yeah. 10 minutes, like, can I come in? Can I pray for you? Um, and so, yeah, I'm not sure how long they're spending. Uh, I think it probably varies. Yeah, it's a, I mean, this is so interesting because, um, you know, there's a, a deep, I only know of one palliative care group in the country, it's at Seattle Children's, um, that has, they, their palliative care group doesn't do any symptom management or pain, so they just made a decision. All of that goes to the pain team. And then um, the palliative care group focuses on decision-making support, and that's what they do. And they're multidisciplinary. They're made up of a physician, um, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, and all of them um, they've been working together for years, and so all of them have acquired a genuine sort of skill at, at family meetings and at helping with decision-making support. And that group, to me, is almost the model for what an ICU like this, with those numbers, needs. Because I swear, if you got, if 79% of your ventilated patients 
are dying. That means that there's a bunch of people on ventilators who ought not to be. And if they had a decision-making kind of opportunity beforehand, then even if they go on a ventilator in a way that's not likely to have biological benefit for them, at least you know they're making a choice that makes sense in light of the rest of what they care about and what they hope for. But if the reason that 79% of ventilated patients die is because we, we, we are responding to their biology along the way, and that's just the next thing to do, is to put them on a ventilator, um, then we're missing a really important decision-making point. And if there were predictors of that, then those would be the people that I would make mandatory chaplain visits. <laughs> yeah. Um, <coughs> and empower the chaplains to per engage in like real decision-making discussions instead of um, that being something that's only in the hands of the physician. Yeah, one thing I'll say is I think that numbers, I don't think it was 79% of ventilated patients who die. I think it was 79% of ventilated patients. I'll have to look back at that, but I don't think it's quite, that was the stat, but it is probably a high proportion of ventilated patients who die. But it is, I mean, we have a 15 to 20% mortality rate in our ICU, in the medical ICU. And, you've got and that's a lot where, of ventilated, yeah. So it could be 79%. Yeah. That number so, must mean something yeah. Else. So, um, but one thing that I would say to that is, you know, as I've talked to the chaplain department here, I do think that there are certain people who are less likely to need a chaplain consult. So if I come in for a bypass that, you know, is pretty routine, you know, but I need to be in the ICU for 48 hours after my surgery, like, and everything goes well, probably don't need to be seen by a chaplain, you know. But for the patient who's, you know, 60 years old and has some kind of, you know, leukemia and, you know, is sick after chemotherapy, ends up in the ICU, like, you know, there are probably a lot of questions that come up and even if they survive, you know, certainly more likely to have potential needs and potential future conversations that need to have about what limits of care are, things like that. And, mm -hmm. and again, um, you know, it's not everyone, but, you know, certainly like the medical ICU needs are probably higher than the surgical, the cardiothoracic ICU needs. Because um, again, most of those patients are gonna be in and out. Um, so anyway, this question is how helpful do you think chaplains would be when patients are actively dying? I am a little curious as who's, who these people who don't think they would be helpful and what their experience would be or was um, that made them say that they wouldn't be helpful, but you know, obviously almost um, unanimously believe that they would be helpful. But um, in terms of being helpful when patients are recovering, again, it's actually surprising, like most of the physicians will still say that they would be helpful. Um, so I think there's this disconnect between when they think, when we think they would be helpful and when they, um, when we actually consult them. But, you know, certainly it's less so than when, you know, there's the patients actively dying. So there's still this mindset of like, you know, the chaplain comes in when someone's dying, not when someone's surviving. Um, which also affects the patients because when we ask them if they want to see a chaplain, you know, I think their first reaction is, wait, does that mean I'm dying? Or um, there's almost this sense of like, you only call the chaplain if it's the last rites. Um, 
And so trying to normalize it a little bit more is probably one of our challenges. Um, so again, are chaplains only for the dying patients? Is it just for the families? Um, and what about ICU survivors who may actually need some spiritual support at that time? <coughs> Um, and then communication with chaplains. So how often do you speak directly to the chaplains? Again, this was pretty, um, I thought, pretty telling. Even the nurses who are directly at the bedside. Um, so the chaplains should be walking past them as they go into the room. Uh, only 40% are saying that they often or always speak to the chaplain. And obviously much less for physicians. And then how often do you read the chaplain notes? Um, again, pretty rare. I'm surprised that attendings read to chaplains. That 30% yeah. of physicians read yeah. chaplains. That's notes. attendings. I, I feel like the quorum of the chaplain notes in our yeah. hospital. Well, I, I suspect that that might be kind of overreporting. Um, but again, it's still pretty uh, it's still pretty low. Uh, and again, because I think I was at palliative care grand rounds the other day and we were talking about chaplain notes and I was saying, well, no one's reading them, so you could change them all you want, but unless we change the culture where people are going to read them more, um, it's probably not going to make a difference in care. But I think one of the problems now, too, is with our new health system record, like there's notes for everything, so you can't actually find any notes in general. So even as a consultant, if I'm doing a pulmonary consult, if something needs to be told, you know, said to the primary team, I actually just call them. And so I think there's nothing that can replace actual like verbal communication. And so questions are, you know, why is, what are the barriers to communication? Why are the chaplain notes so infrequently read? Does it have to do with content of the note? Does it just have to do with, you know, people not valuing what they have to say? You know, it's hard to say. Um, so we did this other project, uh, I did this with Farr and then one of the med students who was working with us, Brittany Lee, she's now at Seattle Children's doing pediatric residency. So we actually looked at the chaplain notes and did some qualitative work, um, just seeing like what they were saying and uh, how we might be able to interpret this. And so again, we tried to, when we published this, we really tried to say that this was coming through the physician lens of interpretation. So. You know, because we'd get all this feedback, well, maybe they were trying to say this. It's like, well, this is what we were interpreting. So, you know, certainly we know that that's an area of bias. But if the communication is meant to communicate to the physicians, then certainly I think it's an important lens to talk about. And so we did a qualitative study. We took all the free text from those six months of chaplain notes. And, um, you know, I don't know if any of you have done qualitative research. It was relatively new to me, too. But um, it's basically this form where you kind of read through um, kind of individually, and then you code it for different themes that you find that are coming up. And you basically try to make sure that there's, you know, consistency between all the people who are reading and coding. And so we broke this up into four main themes. Um, and I don't know how many of know Amy there's some people some clinicians here so I don't know if you can tell me if you agree with some of these thoughts but we found that there was a lot of use of code language so the chaplain notes here are basically broken up into like checkbox ministry interventions and then free text and so the checkboxes talking to the chaplain group um, they basically 
just made them up on their own based on what they thought were themes that would come up. And so the checkboxes are mainly for the interns who are in CPE because they're not technically allowed to write free text. So it was an opportunity for them to check off what they did. So one of them is compassionate presence, prayer. There were like 15 different options. And so one thing that we found though was that a lot of the free text was just reiterating what was the checkboxes. So oftentimes word for word. So it would be chaplain prov uh, provided compassionate presence or chaplain facilitated um, you know, reconciliation with family. And so we found that a lot of times it was just kind of reiterating what was already you know, listed as the ministry intervention. Um, we found that there was oftentimes description rather than interpretation. So a lot of times there were obje objective things that were written about. So, you know, chaplain brought patient a glass of water because they were thirsty or, you know, there were, um, or, you, you know, kind of objective things that didn't really tell us much about what their spiritual needs were, but were just kind of um, objective kind of storytelling um, pieces, which, again, takes time, but not really that, uh, not really adding much to what you know, a clinician, a clinician is going to read. Um, we found that there were oftentimes follow, passive follow-up plans. So um, chaplains would write that you know, gave patient information as to how to re reach the chaplain, or you know, please consult if any new needs arise, um, as a, as opposed to active follow-up plans in terms of saying um, patients having some spiritual distress, I'll check in tomorrow to see if any of these have resolved or if they have any new needs. Um, but one of the helpful things was oftentimes in terms of relationship dynamics, so relationship dynamics between patient and uh, family members or relationship dynamics between the family members. So a lot of that is oftentimes useful because it gives us a sense of, you know, things at play that we may not see if the family's not there and so, you know, to summarize these two studies, um, again, there's this disconnect between perceived roles and actual practice. Uh, we see that few clinicians consult a chaplain when patients are recovering. Nurses are more likely than physicians to believe that chaplains would be helpful for recovering patients. Uh, most clinicians do not speak to chaplains or read their notes and that chaplain documentation focuses more on objective rather than interpretive information. I have actually seen some chaplain notes since then, and I, I do think that actually structures of it have changed a little bit. Um, there's more of kind of a spiritual assessment put into some of them, I think. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's a new change based on this or if it's just changes in general, but I think ultimately the bigger question is not so much with the content of the note, but communication in general with the clinicians. And that's what, you know, with what Bray has brought up, um, I've really advocated for having a chaplain um, in the medical ICU, like they're present, um, communicating with the team. Um, a lot of it's limited by the CPE structure in general. People have kind of their education time, um, and so a lot of the time that they're doing classes is actually when we're rounding, when they can get the most information about the patients um, and where all the other disciplines are there. And so, you know, the question is how do we work around the fact that this is a training organization for chaplains as well, but also know that if you want to be present and have a role on an interdisciplinary team, you have to be present. Um, but those are challenges that involve, you know, the ICU, that involve CPE and, uh, 
yeah, not easy answers for. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of future directions that we can move into, uh, but I think qualitative work is probably um, one of the key things. So if any of you are interested in doing some, some research and partnering with people, I think there's certainly there are opportunities here. Um, and then ultimately understanding what patients and families need. Do they even, is chaplaincy the way to go or is it somehow like their home pastors that are really, um, you know, important? Or is it something about whether a physician or a nurse asks about these issues that really changes care? Um, you know, I don't know, but certainly ways that we can move forward to kind of change how we care for patients in the ICU. So that's, that this is kind of, there were a lot of people involved in this. Um, and again, I was working against, you know, the culture of Duke in general in terms of doing this type of research. So I'm thankful to the people who kind of made it happen. Uh, that was great, Phil. Thank you so much.